millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everyone, welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Coming up in just a minute, we are going to have Ask Andrew, where Andrew Kern answers your questions about the essential ideas of classical education. I'm David Kern, and quickly, I just want to bring you a word from our sponsors, our friends over at CLT, which is a classically-based alternative to the SAT and ACT and is the fastest-growing college entrance exam in America today. More than 90 colleges now accept CLT, and many of these colleges have endorsed it as their preferred admissions test. Students can benefit from same-day test results and can share their scores with colleges for no additional charge. To register, to learn about the colleges that accept it, or to learn more about CLT, head over to cltexam.com. That is C-L-T-E-X-A-M.com. Thanks to CLT for making this podcast possible. And now enjoy Ask Andrew. It is the business of education to wait upon Pentecost. Unhappily, there is something about educational syllabuses, and especially about examination papers, which seems to be rather out of harmony with Pentecostal manifestations. The energy of ideas does not seem to descend into the receptive mind with quite that rush of cloven fire which we ought to expect. Uh, possibly there is something lacking in our idea of education. Possibly something inhibiting has happened to the energy. But Pentecost will happen, whether within or without official education. From some quarter or other, the power will descend to flame or to smolder until it is ready to issue in a new revelation. Hi, I'm Andrew Kern. Welcome to Ask Andrew. That crazy sounding paragraph came from Dorothy Sayers book The Mind of the Maker a book with which I have to which I am deeply indebted and with which I have a couple minor differences of opinion um ah, there might be even big 
significant differences of, of opinion, but only if you already are engaged in the thought process that she's leading us down. And that's why I'm so indebted to the book. Pentecost, waiting upon Pentecost is the business of education. What on earth does she have in mind by that? Well, I'm not sure, but I'll say this, that she believes, like I do, in the analogy of the Holy Trinity to the mind of man. In fact, the mind of the maker is a double reference both to the mind of God and to the mind of man. The maker is God, and we, being his image, are also makers. Uh, how did Tolkien put it? Uh, sub-creators. I suspect they learn from each other. So when she talks about it as the business of education to wait upon Pentecost, I would not be at all surprised if she means that quite literally, that we are waiting for the descent of the Holy Spirit. But she also means it analogically, that in education, what we're waiting for is the power of an idea to come to life. Those can be reduced to the aha moment, to eureka, uh, but they're life-transforming. Insights, the flame of truth, that's what she's talking about. And I brought that in to try to justify my ravings in the last um, Ask Andrew episode, where I argued that the human mind and therefore the way we learn is patterned on the Holy Trinity. I suggested that the Father is the truth invisible, that the Son is the truth incarnate, and that the Spirit is the witness to the truth. And I also went so far as to argue that that means that we can think in terms of truth we can think in terms of particular tr truths or facts, and we can think of the arts of truth perception and do well to do so when we think about education. And then I aggressively and nastily reduced all of that to three categories of, of, of experience, of learning that a child can experience. One would be truth or ideas. One would be skills, and the other would be Facts. Truth or ideas obviously would go with truth, truth invisible. Facts go with particularity, therefore the truth incarnate. And skills, the purpose of intellectual skills is to bear witness to the truth. And so that goes with the Holy Spirit. And I contended that all of that is the structure by which we can uh, learn to assess rightly. Because did you notice that Dorothy Sayers in her paragraph was, was, was mentioning assessment. She said, maybe there's something wrong with examination papers. In other words, with the way, well, she mentions curriculum, there is something about educational syllabuses and especially about examination papers, which seems to be rather out of harmony with Pentecostal manifestations. In other words, the, the curriculum and the assessment don't lead to insight don't lead to, uh, to truth being, being, becoming part of our soul. Students have receptive minds, but the energy of the ideas doesn't get there. Maybe she says there's something wrong with how we think about education. Maybe there's something inhibiting the energy. Examination papers. Big part of it, she says, especially examination papers. I based this argument on John 15, 26, but I also mentioned John 15, 27, that went on to say, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. What I want to emphasize right now is that that's the role of the teacher. 
if the Father is the truth and the Son is the truth incarnate and the Spirit is the, is the witness to the truth, then you also will testify, you also will bear witness, refers to the apostles, and we are analogous, the teacher is analogous to the apostles. And so we're looking at the role of the apostle. In reality, the, what does the apostle do? He points to the Son with the aid of the Holy Spirit so that the disciple can see the Father in the Son. He points to the Son so the disciple can see the truth. By analogy, what does the teacher do? Points to the particular, the incarnation of a truth, so that the student can see a truth. And it's funny, we talk about manipulatives in math, and sometimes I wonder if that's not just because we're afraid of God or something. I'm just kidding, I think, there. But why call them manipulatives? Why not call them incarnations? That's what they are. If I show my child three teddy bears and two teddy bears, and those two teddy bears and three teddy bears add up to five teddy bears, what have I done with three plus two equals five? I've incarnated it. I've embodied it. I've put it in, analogically speaking, flesh and blood. I've put it in front of the senses of my child so that he can see the truth, but he can't see the truth directly. He has to see the truth embodied. Do you see that? And that leads us to all kinds of insight about teaching, but I also want to focus, as I'm supposed to be doing, on the practicality of assessment. So let me talk, let me talk ever so briefly about goals which are practical because the end is in the beginning. And then I want to talk about how to teach and assess based on the column or the person, Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, that you are teaching within. Okay, here's what I mean. What is the practical goal of teaching, of educating, of, of assessing rather? Well, I would suggest to you that the goal of education is freedom. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that freedom means self-governance. And self-governance requires self-assessment. So get this. The goal of assessment is that your child will ultimately learn, that the student will ultimately learn to assess his own work, to assess himself without anybody needing to be there. And until a person can self-assess, that person can't be free because he can't govern himself. You can't rule without assessing. So the ultimate goal is self-assessment, learning how to assess your, your own work yourself so that you can rule yourself so that you can be free. But the immediate goal in every single lesson is always to testify to reality, to testify of truth and of the child's relation to the truth. So therefore, it has two elements to it. It has an to, The goal does. It has the element of invigorating, Right? If a child is given confidence and hope that even though right now he hasn't attained truth, it's still possible, which is one thing a good assessment does, then that invigorates his learning. Every kid knows when he falls short. Why, why pretend? Why, why flatter? Why, why be like the, those whose throat is an open sepulcher and flatter children when, when they know perfectly well they haven't got to the truth yet? So tell them and tell them why they didn't. What a great favor that is. The reproofs of the righteous are cherished by the wise. And then, in other words, correct is the second. So there's the two elements here are psychologically or spiritually, maybe. We want to invigorate their learning, not undercut it. And secondly, 
we need to correct them if they wander from the path of truth. And I'm talking about in a specific lesson. So if they wander from the path of truth in literature, in, in, in a math lesson, in a science lesson, our function, our purpose in assessment is to get them back on the path toward truth. All right. That being the case, given that, that those are our goals, to invigorate and to correct, and freedom ultimately, then we need to talk now about how we teach and assess based on the column that we're teaching. Now remember, father, I've, I've argued, goes with truth or, or idea. Son goes with fact or incarnation. And, and spirit goes with skill of perception. I'll, so I'm just going to use the word skill. Okay. So how do we teach a skill? Any skill. Well, the way we do it is, as Philippians 4, 8, and 9 express it, where Paul gives the curriculum and the pedagogy, almost everything we need to know. The way we teach a skill is by modeling it. What you've seen and heard in me, this do. Okay, that's what a teacher says. By, by virtue of standing in front of a student, what you're saying to the student is, do what I do. Because they will. I promise you, they will. And it won't always be what you think you're teaching that they learn. But if you want them to learn a skill, model it for them. What, what is their role then? To imitate, or you might say practice. What does it mean to practice a skill? It means to imitate a master. When my daughter did ballet, she ma- imitated the teacher, the master. Now she's a master. So she teaches little girls and has them imitate her. Some, so you imitate, you model, and then you imitate. And what's the assessment? This is crucial. The assessment is to tell them how well they imitated. If you want them to hold a pencil correctly, and you do, it's an act of kindness to teach a child to hold a pencil correctly so that they're not in anguish their whole life holding pencils and then drift over to the keyboard and lose their personality. When you assess any skill, you model it for them, and then they imitate you. And then you tell them how well they imitated you. Now, there's three ways, three levels, you might say, of skill that you're going to model and then they're going to imitate and you're going to assess. Okay, first of all, are three things that they're going to, three areas where you're going to assess a skill. The first is in the exercises, okay? So that's the simple piece of the skill, of the art, rather. So let's say I'm going to learn how to play basketball and I want to learn how to do a layup and I'm in second grade, all right? What I need to to teach my student, what I need to model for them, is how you step toward the hoop and lift the second foot. That was how I was taught it when I was a little kid. You step toward the hoop, one step, then you half step by lifting the other leg and you put the ball toward the hoop as best as you can. Okay. The exercise is not the game, is it? It's one specific element, and you do that over and over and over again. So the 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 what what happens is. The coach models the exercise. The player imitates what the coach does. And the coach says, yes, that, yes, that, yes, that, but not this. Make this adjustment. Okay. And what you're looking for then is the quality of practice, or you might say the quality of the imitation of the of the practice. Okay. But the second thing is beyond just the exercise, there's the process or the art itself the way of doing something. So now I might have my, my basketball team play a whole game. I might have my, my, my daughter teacher might've had her do a whole dance. Okay. Or a a whole systematic move, a, a complex move 
in dance. Um, any skill like is like this. Okay, now there's the process. And what the coach does is models the process by putting together all the things that were learned in the exercise. And then the student, the disciple, imitates the process, and the coach says, your performance was like this. These were the strong points. These were the th areas where you imitated well. And these are the areas that you need to work on. And so let's go back to exercises to help with those areas. So there's the exercises, but then there's the process, the art. Or the part, the, you know, a larger, more complex portion of the art. And then finally, there's the artifact itself, the thing made. Now, this is easier to see in painting, let's say, um, or an engineering task or, or you know, something that has a, a product that's an outcome. But let's look at that then. Okay, so what's the product of a painting? Well, interestingly, we call it a painting, don't we? We have the noun painting that follows the verb painting. I am painting. I am learning the art of painting, and I make a painting. Okay. And that painting is going to be something different from the process. So I have the exercise that taught me how to hold a paintbrush and how to make strokes and how to mix colors. Then I have the processes by when, where I mix the exercises together. And then I have the artifact, the painting itself. In writing, I'm going to have exercises that teach me how to do a simile. Then I'm going to have processes that teach me how to write an essay. And then I'm going to have the essay. Now, here's the crucial point about for the coach, the teacher. Of those three things, the exercise, the process, and the artifact or product, the product is the least important. If I'm teaching my child to write essays, the least important thing for the assessment is the essay itself. That sounds counterintuitive, and especially that's what we tend to look at, isn't it? The final product. But that's not the most important thing by any means. The most important thing is the exercises. Second to the exercises is how well they put the exercises together into a process. And finally, there's this artifact. But you know what? If you direct all your attention as a coach to the exercises and the practice, to the exercises and the process, you're going to get a good artifact. The artifact is the showtime. Okay, good. That was good. We knew that was going to happen. This is, in sports, you see this in, in a game, right? That My goodness, if they haven't been exercising and practicing the processes between the games, they're not going to look good in the games. The same is true in art. The same is true in math. The same is too, true in, in reading. The same is true in anything else. Focus your attention primarily on the exercises and secondarily on the, the processes. And the artifact will take care of itself. That's how you coach skills. You look for the quality of the practice, you look for quality of the performance, and you look at the quality of the product, and you give feedback on each. But you treat the product itself, the artifact, as the least important thing. Well, what about facts? This can get confusing, but I'll keep it really simple here. When it comes to facts, what you want them to do is remember them. That means they have to notice them. So you have to point to them. And often that simply means telling them something. You might want them to, to remember a list of names, the seven kings of Rome, the 212 emperors, the, the uh, 46 pre 45 or 46 presidents. I forget what we're on now. Um, you, you, you tell them what they're supposed to remember, dates, names, places, and so on. And then they have to recall it. They, so so what they do to learn it, they have to remember it. 
And then to assess it, what you look for is how much of what they were supposed to remember did they remember. Now, that's a very reductionist way of thinking about teaching, and I would include story and so on, so don't, don't misunderstand me as saying that um, I just want you to drill facts. But I'm not opposed to facts. I like facts in context, but, but I'm not opposed to facts once they know the context, drawing them out a little bit, and just remembering things in sequence. But I'm, I'm getting complex again. I want to keep it simple. The point is that when it comes to facts... The teacher tells them, communicates to them, gives them a book with the information. Their task is to remember it. And then when you assess what you're assessing for is recollection. Now, believe me, there's more to that that we can go into later. But for now, let's leave it at that. If you can start with that, that will lead to better assessment as long as you distinguish. And I should have said this earlier. I'll end with this, I hope, because it's a crucial point. You don't teach skills the way you teach facts. You don't assess skills the way you assess facts. If you do, if you assess the same way, you will undercut one or the other or both skills and facts. This is even more true when we come to the third column of truth. How do you teach a truth? Well, you teach a truth by embodying it. Remember, your role is to witness. You, you either embody it yourself, if it's a simple truth, or you find an embodiment of it, like a story, and then point to the embodiment, to the embodied truth, to the incarnate truth. As a teacher, your job is to point to the incarnate truth. What's the, what's the student's role? To behold it, to look at it. Okay, now you are witnessing to it in large part by teaching them how to look, by teaching them how to hear, by teaching them how to, how to smell, by teaching them how to use their senses to observe. How can, how can the, the importance of that be exaggerated? You are teaching them to pay attention, to use their senses to pay attention and look at a truth. Okay, well, how do you assess it? Well, part of it is a skill, isn't it? So be careful. I'm just going to focus right now on how do you assess whether a child has perceived a truth. But I'm going to qualify it by saying that the purpose of teaching the skills of truth perception is to help them perceive a truth. Okay, but now, back to truth. To teach it, you embody it, or you point to it, and you direct their attention to it. The student's task, then, is to attend to it, to behold it. How do you know if they've perceived the truth? I believe there's two ways. One is subjective, one is objective. The first way you know if a child has perceived the truth, well, how did Dorothy Sayers put it? Let me turn back to that to that page. By the way, if you have the book, Mother Mind of the Maker, it's on page 112. The energy of ideas, she puts it negatively, does not seem to descend into the receptive mind with quite that rush of cloven fire which we ought to expect. Hmm. What you're looking for is a rush of cloven fire. You might say inspiration, but let me simplify it. What you're looking for is joy. If a child perceives a truth that he's been looking for, he will feel joy. That's what you're looking for. That's a subjective. And sometimes they'll be embarrassed when they show it, so be cautious about that. But then there's the objective. Can they now turn around themselves and embody the truth they have perceived? In math, you've taught them that 3 plus 2 equals 5. Can they now 
do that on their own? Can they take three teddy bears and two teddy bears and, and put them together and make five teddy bears and tell you that's what they've done? Can they now do a worksheet, for example, with the drills on it that, that have addition problems? Um, can they write the, 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 can they express the truth in verbal form in an essay? Now be careful because that no, I just brought in a skill and that's what I meant before. Truth is truth, not skill, but you, but there are skills you need to perceive and express truth. Those are the arts. Those are the Holy Spirit. Those are the teacher. Okay. So let me summarize. The goal of assessment is self-assessment. The goal of assessment is freedom, self-governance, which requires self-assessment. The immediate goal is either to invigorate, is, is both to invigorate learning and to correct error. There are three areas where you need to teach and to assess, and those areas are skills, facts, and truths. If you want to assess a skill, you look at the exercises that they're practicing and see the quality of their practice. You look at the process that they're engaged in and look at the quality of their performance. And you look at the artifact that they have produced and you ask about the quality of the product. If you're teaching facts, you tell them they have to remember them and you measure in some way how much they've recalled and how accurately they've recalled. If you're teaching truth, you embody the truth. They behold the truth embodied. And you assess whether they have joy and whether they can re-embody the truth that they've learned. Now, I do believe that this is uh, extremely effective, and I'm going to even add this. It might sound intimidating, and it would be a change for those of us who are accustomed to standardized tests, which are uh, the measure of the decline they cause, I'm tempted to say, I do say. But if you, But if you assess... This way, it's actually simpler, it's more informative, it's more encouraging, and instead of cursing the child, it's so often assessment does, it blesses the child, and even can move them toward rest instead of anxiety within their own souls. So let me encourage you to think about this yourself. Send in questions to Ask Andrew if you have any. Um, I'm not done talking about assessment by any means. I'm also not done talking about anything else these Ask Andrew sessions have been on. But I think this gives you a framework to think about assessment in the three columns of truth, witnessing to the truth, and embodying the truth. And may the Lord of truth remember you in his kingdom. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.